Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Dr. Isha Desai. Today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Kathy Winston. Dr. Winston is the Dean for the College of Nursing for the University of Phoenix. She is an accomplished nurse, clinician, educator, and academic dean whose career spans more than 30 years. Her experience includes directing an NIH, or National Institutes of Health, research grant for graduate education, high-risk home healthcare nursing practices, and acting as a lead author for the California Healthcare Workforce Standardized Nursing Curriculum. Thank you so much for being with us here today. Thank you for having me. Well, you've done so many amazing things. I would love to just start off by asking you about your background and what led you to pursue nursing education as a career. Well, I'm a rather unique story in as much as I sort of fell into nursing or found my way into nursing in a rather indirect way. I was a registered nurse at the age of 19. I'm not sure who was foolish enough to give me a license at the age of 19, and I'm grateful every day for the very uh, rigorous education background that I had that kept me on the straight and narrow. So I've had a very long career as a result of that. And like a lot of young nurses and a lot of young uh, people, when they first get into the healthcare industry, it seems quite glamorous from afar, right? And you think you're going to be doing all of the very exciting things. And I always have to remind everybody that uh, it's not nearly as glamorous as television makes it out to be. But I started in critical care. And I wanted to be in that very high energy, real adrenaline producing environment. And I was young enough physically and emotionally to do that. So I did um, have a career in that. As my career continued, one of the things I love about nursing is that you can change jobs without ever changing careers. And you can have an entirely different focus because there's such great variety in that. So I went from being a critical care nurse and medical surgical background with some experience also in a burn care as a result of a huge burn disaster that I was pulled into. And then later realized that a lot of what I was doing in uh, critical care also had a great interest in family health and public health. And so I transitioned into a community family public health environment, communicable disease, a focus on prevention. And then when I went back to school to get my master's degree, I uh, realized that nursing education was something that really spoke to me personally. And I've been everything from a faculty member in pre-licensure programs for helping to start brand new nurses to uh, doctoral preparation and working with students at the re in research and policy development. And then moved from nursing education as a nurse educator into administration. And I've been a dean of nursing and health sciences and human services in a wide range of schools in the California State University system, the California Community College System, a few private faith-based institutions, and now here at the University of Phoenix. It almost sounds like five resumes squashed into one when you, when you <laughs> lay it out. Um, I, I'm curious, so you started at the age of 19. Most folks at the age of 19 are barely figuring out which way is up and down. So that's, that obviously kind of speaks to your mental space. What got you thinking about public health? What got you even kind of wondering or, or thinking that public health would be of interest to you? Well, I think a couple of things. While I was still working on my bachelor's degree while I was an RN, practicing in, in critical care, I often found myself just sort of naturally drawn to what I'd been taught in nursing from the beginning, which is that the patient really is defined as not just a biological being, but this biological, biopsychosocial being with a spiritual and a 
interaction with his, their environment. And that the patient was not always just that individual. I needed to always remember that it included the family. So when you're a nurse working in critical care, you know, out in that waiting room are oftentimes very stressed family members. So my connection and my desire to be more holistic, I guess, in how I practice gave me a sort of a natural interest. And then also while I was in school, finishing that bachelor's degree, I date myself a little bit, but Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who was developing a new understanding of the dignity of dying and the experience of dying, and I was working with people who died quite regularly, also reinforced this interest I had in the whole person and the whole experience of life. And I think the other thing that I really understood is that I was in what we call the um, secondary intervention of care or, or even the tertiary intervention of care. It was the injury or the illness had already occurred and our job was to fix it. And I often found myself very drawn to the notion of, well, what if we just fixed it on the front end, i.e. prevented it, we'd have a lot less effort on sort of the back end. And so I think that's really what moved me in that direction. And then just quite naturally, sort of employment opportunities opened up that I pursued and that took me down that path. And in nursing education, I spent most of my teaching career in public health nursing. There's that quote, like an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned communicable diseases. Was there a certain type of disease or, or ailment or illness that you were kind of drawn to where you saw prevention as being so valuable? Well, I think certainly in public health practice in California, where there was a large immigrant population and we saw uh, a number of communicable diseases in terms of uh, tuberculosis and the unimmunized children that would come into the school systems. Certainly those were things where we knew that we could really prevent the communicable disease. I have to say though that it wasn't about the public health piece as much as my experience as a brand new nurse on a floor at 19 in a very traditional nursing time on a medical surgical floor. And in the middle of the night, one evening, there had been a huge disaster, natural disaster, in Kingman, Arizona. And it was an explosion at a gas station that sent 29 people um, seriously injured with burns. And so while that wasn't communicable disease, it really was about prevention of infection and the concept of infectious illness. And I walked into what I thought was going to be a morning seven to three shift in my cute little white uniform and my little hat on in those days. And um, 19 years old at that time, probably still more concerned about how I looked than what I was really doing. And I was really thrust into this very, very serious delivery of patient care in my little community hospital in a little town in Henderson, Nevada. Nine of those 29 burn victims were flown in. And they converted half of our medical surgical floor into a burn unit. So it reminds me a little bit of what we've experienced here in the COVID experience when they talk about nurses who didn't have any experience with infectious illnesses suddenly having to care for patients with infectious illness. And, and that memory stays with me as one of my first nursing memories. And it certainly speaks to the prevention of uh, infection. Wow, that's a pretty powerful idea, especially for a young person that's just starting out their career. I can understand why you remember it so clearly. Right now, as you're you know, at University of Phoenix College of Nursing, how do you think about training folks and uh, specifically kind of evidence-based strategies to build curriculum to prepare them to do the right thing in those moments when they're confronted with the unknown? 
Well, I think we have a lot of things. You know, nursing education's evolved a lot over time, even in the period of time that I've been in education. And so I often think it's somewhere in the balance of the old and the new, right? I think technology and innovation and so much of what we have in front of us that's going to really help us solve many of the problems of healthcare delivery in the future. But I think um, everything old is new again as well. And there is something to really be said for helping new healthcare providers in whatever disciplines they are in, understand foundationally the things not only that bring them there, but the real requirements for them to be successful in terms of their practice. You know, the issues around safety. Safety will always be premier and at the forefront of everything we do. The issues of compassion, of course, as well. So recognizing that the foundational characteristics of what we do as healthcare providers remains the same how we choose to deliver that and innovative ways in which we are able to uh, prepare and train and educate will be further advanced. I, I just had a wonderful conversation with a colleague of mine where we talked about how innovation and progress in healthcare, can we always use the uh, concept of um, medication administration as our example. And um, I suppose if you live long enough, you get to go all the way back. I feel like sometimes I tell the story that everybody hears from their parents growing up about how they walked two miles to school, uphill, backwards, in the snow, naked, right? And um, now I find myself sounding just like that when I start talking to new students in the healthcare professions. When we talk about when I was a nurse starting out, when we administered medication, the order was written by the physician whose handwriting you couldn't read, and it was transcribed onto a onto a little cardex, which was a flip chart. And then it was transcribed again onto these little two by two cards. And then you poured them into the cup and there were all these maybe 52 steps in administering medication. And we've evolved over time to a number of other mechanisms, not the least of which now is a, a really sophisticated, highly safe situation for reducing the risk of medication error in our uh, pre-dose PIXA systems. Yeah, those stories are actually both nostalgic and also in some ways, uh, probably regret the fact that you had to do a lot of things that today you wouldn't have had to do at all. Your position is so unique also because of the workforce development issue, because now we're living through this time where we have the graying of America and you need more and more clinicians. And that was even before COVID and COVID kind of exposed mm-hmm. us to a new level. What are your thoughts on how we can help to both strengthen our healthcare systems infrastructure and also boost workforce development, which increasingly is, is so important as many sectors are seeing unemployment, healthcare is seeing a need. Yeah, absolutely. Physician medicine, nursing, and many of the allied and associated health sciences are going to continue to see an increase. Don't quote me on it, but I think they're predicting anywhere from a 13 to 20% more rapid increase in those professional um, positions than in any other industry. And with that, we also know that the average age of a nurse is now 50 years old. And there's been a delay for a number of reasons in retirement, but now we're going to start to see that. We're going to see physicians retiring, nurses retiring. There's been a, a tremendous amount of physician burnout that we talk about because of the changing landscape of healthcare delivery. The nursing shortage has been a very real shortage for quite some time now, and there was a little flattening of that curve, so to speak, during a period of time 
when we when the economy shifted and individuals didn't step out into the retirement arena as quickly as they expected. But by 2030, which is not that far off in our future, if we don't manage the workforce shortage that we are predicting, then that manpower issue is going to be quite real for us. Now, one of the things I think that came out of uh, COVID that we did have learned is that there really is going to be a place in the future, not only for the professionals, such as physicians and registered nurses and advanced practice nurses in the healthcare provider arena, but that there's going to be a place for other individuals to work in community. And I think that's a huge lesson in all of that we experienced recently. I think the healthcare system benefiting from a community and a public health focus has always been there, but I think it's been accelerated with COVID. And so we're going to see other healthcare providers needing to help us fill that workforce gap that we have. And so thinking about the fact that you have more and more need and more and more diversity in terms of roles and responsibilities, how are you seeing educational institutions change to keep pace with what the workforce is demanding? Well, I have to say that one of the things that I've really been pleased with, particularly at the University of Phoenix, is that it's an innovative institution. Um, I come from a very traditional, very scholarly-driven background and environment in my own education, all of which has served me beautifully and continues to serve people well. However, one of the disadvantages of that is that we move slowly, we're not terribly agile, we're not terribly flexible, and we don't pivot well. And so one of the exciting experiences for me just in the two years that I've been at the University of Phoenix is it really allowed me the freedom and sort of the expectation that we have to move in those kinds of ways, even pre-COVID. But now because of COVID, being that very agile, flexible, lean, and innovative organization that can pivot and move quickly, that proved really beneficial in helping our nursing students not miss a day and allowed them to continue to progress and persist in their education. And so with that, I think what we're going to continue to see are things that like we are doing, which is how do we do concurrent enrollment programs? Community college students who are in their pre-licensure program on their way to becoming an RN. How do we expedite that process, not at the expense of rigor, or at the expense of sound evidence-based learning, but rather in a way that helps us to serve students who have competing needs in their lives. We know in recent research that's been done, that Phoenix has really identified that when a, an individual is gonna to return to school, that we have to make sure we understand that the most important thing in their life is their family. The second most important thing in their life is their job. And then after that, their continuing education or their schooling is a consideration. But if we're not sensitive and building curriculum and building programs around that easy to work with kind of model, those individuals aren't going to be responsive and receptive. And most importantly, they're going to find it difficult to be successful. Yeah, I think that's really well put. And it's the folks that I think are often most tenuous in the job market that end up being the ones that are not successful. And so they often trend together. You know, we're a teaching company. And um, one thing that I'd love for you to do is if you can reach into your very diverse background and pick out any one thing that you think maybe the general public doesn't know or, or should know. Uh, it could be on any topic that you think is relevant. And just teach us something that would fill in maybe a knowledge gap or bust a myth that we might have about something you care about. 
Well, how about something that's um, contemporary right now? Everybody's hearing a lot of things about how to manage infectious diseases. If I were going to teach you how do you um, prevent the spread of communicable disease, I think first and foremost, I'd want to teach you about how do I, as an individual, keep myself healthy and well. It's not really glamorous. It's not like television. But Florence Nightingale taught us over 200 years ago, long before we knew what an antibiotic was, she told us that if we washed our hands, maintained a clean personal environment, and made sure that we had fresh air and sunshine, ate a healthy meal, that those things alone would help us to prevent infection. So they're very common sense things that we learned probably in kindergarten. But now we're living in a world where hand washing, cleanliness, cough and sneeze protocols, eating well, fresh air and exercise can mean more for us today than in that simplest and purest of forms for keeping ourselves healthy and well. That was a very, very uh, relevant and contemporary, but reaching back to kind of a, I don't know, I don't want to say a more simple time, but, but certainly a time when, when things like this were also known. And then finally, we have a lot of young folks that are maybe, I'm, I'm kind of hearkening back to your image of the 19-year-old who's a new RN and dealing with this tragedy of the burn victims, but they're young folks that are coming of age in their clinical career. What would you say to folks like that, that may be looking at your career and saying, how the heck do I emulate that? How do I even begin to cast a journey like that for myself? Well, I think of all the things you've wanted to chat with me about today, this might be the thing that speaks most to me personally. My passion really is for helping the next generation be successful in the delivery of care and in their chosen profession of nursing or medicine. And I guess what I'd tell them to start with is to just remember that, I don't know who the author of the quote was, but someone who once said, not every day will be good, but there'll be something good in every day. And I think that in the healthcare profession, that is the most beautiful, accurate truth that I could have known. It's been true for my almost 40-year career, and I think it will be true for theirs. And so even as students or as young practicing clinicians, it's not going to be good every day, but there'll be something good in, in every day. You know, we're a well-paid profession, a wide range of well-paid professions, but it's not a profession to choose for the money. It really began, healthcare, um, medicine, and nursing really began as an avocation. And I think that if you are in the healthcare profession because it calls you to care for others, to make a difference, that will sustain you when those days are not so good. I have a four-year-old son, and every night we talk about our favorite part of the day. And so I really appreciate you sharing that quote, because I'm going to share that quote with him tonight. That's a lovely, lovely way of framing that. I, I think that's a wonderful note to maybe end on as well. So I want to just start by thanking you so much for sharing your journey and your thoughts on both clinical practice as well as education with us. That was lovely. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed spending time with you. Thank you. Well, that was uh, today's show. I'm Dr. Isha Sai. Thanks for checking out the show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.